0: to Belt of Truth. Conversations, Arming Laity, powered by the Armor of God Men's Movement. Visit our website at armingmen.com. Hello, this is Bishop Kevin Rhodes of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. You are listening to the Belt of Truth. I'm so happy to be with you today to express my support for this podcast and my gratitude for spreading the good news of the gospel.
1: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and opportunity to just come and speak to you about our passions, our loves. We ask that this conversation be blessed and inspired by your holy words. We entrust all this as we pray together. Glory be to the Father, Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, as as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Welcome, friends. You're listening to The Belt of Truth. I'm Rob Gregory. I'm here with a friend of mine, Father Mark Gertner. Father Mark, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, we wanted to grab you and and get your expertise and and have a conversation on a topic that some people find a little hard to talk about, which is uh, the topic of an annulment, uh, a marriage that didn't
1: work. So uh, I guess, why don't we start with what is an annulment? Yeah. So first of all, let's talk about the name itself. Annulment is sort of a colloquial name that we use in church speak, so to speak. Uh, It's not really the name of what happens. We, in the tribunal, would call it a marriage nullity process. And the reason that this is important is because when the church declares a marriage null, it is saying that from the beginning, a marriage bond actually never occurred. And the reason why that language is important rather than the language of annulment is because annulment sounds like there was a marriage and then it was annulled. It was, you know, broken apart. And that's not what we say, that's not what the, the practice is in, in the tribunal. The tribunal's job is to take evidence and to judge whether a marriage that seemed to exist actually didn't because something was missing. So what is this thing you call a tribunal? Yeah, so the tribunal is, in every diocese, there is a diocesan tribunal, who is which is set up by the bishop to process these cases, these marriage nullity cases. There's a staff. There's always a head person called the judicial vicar. So that's always a priest who is a canon lawyer. And then there are other priests who are judges. Lay people can be judges too in certain circumstances, but they have to be canon lawyers. And then there's a whole staff, people who take testimony, people who are sort of the lawyer for the parties in a marriage nullity case clerical people that do transcriptions and so forth. So it's a whole staff of people that process these marriage nullity cases. And every diocese, at least in the United States, has one. Every diocese is supposed to have one, but there are some places around the world that obviously can't afford, you know, big staffs like this in some of the more developing countries. So walk us through the process. What, what is, how does this process work? Yeah, so when a person, they get married, um, say the marriage falls apart, they get divorced, uh, they want to marry possibly someone else, or they're looking to marry someone else, they, and they have reason to believe maybe that their marriage is null, was null. The first step, at least in our diocese, is that they go to their pastor. And this was something that was pushed by Pope Francis in uh, Metis Sudex, which was, um, every. a lot of people have heard that he kind of reformed the annulment process, but one thing he did was he he really wanted to emphasize the pastoral element of the process. And so he asked for pastors. Interestingly, he didn't say your, your priest at the parish, he said specifically pastors. And I think the reason he did that was because he wanted those who were in those situations to know that your, your situation is important enough for the pastor himself, not to push it off to one of the other priests, which can be done. I mean, a lot of people are comfortable with different priests, so they could go to different priests. But Pope Francis said specifically that the pastor should pay attention to this. So you go to your pastor, Uh, In our diocese, there's an intake form that you would expect, you know, it takes vital information about who you are, where you live, where you were baptized, who you married, where you married them. If there were other previous marriages, you know, that is all uh, recorded. The person also has to name witnesses, because like any process of truth, there has to be corroboration uh, to a certain extent. So once all that is gathered, documents too, marriage license, you know, baptismal records, all the things that you would expect that is sent in to the tribunal by the pastor. The first thing that happens then is that the petitioner, and that's the person who is asking for the marriage nullity process, the petitioner, the other person, the ex-spouse, if you will, is called the respondent. So we know all our terms here. So the petitioner will be called in for a one-on-one interview with a person that's called an auditor. And it's not as scary as you might think. It's, it's simply the auditor will go through them and ask them about Their family history, you know, dating, what happened during dating, what was the respondent's family like, you know, were there any problems during dating, marriage, early marriage, what happened in the marriage, what happened to make marital life fall apart, so forth. Were there any psychological issues, that kind of thing, just to flesh out all the history. The respondent also has a chance to participate because it is their right to give their side, if you will. And so the same kinds of things will be asked of them. Sometimes respondents don't participate. That doesn't necessarily make the case not go forward, but uh, many times they do. So they come in for the same interview. And then the same thing happens with the witnesses. Uh, one-on-one interview, those are a little shorter usually. Many times what is being judged is on psychological grounds, and we can get into that in a minute when we get past what the process itself is here. They, uh, but but sometimes one of the parties is asked to go for a psychological evaluation so that uh, we know if there's something there that might have affected their ability to enter into marriage. All that information, plus any other evidence that might there might be, like documentary evidence from a divorce proceeding or whatever, is included in the case. The lawyers, if you will, for the process, give a brief. So the advocate for the petitioner writes a brief. And then there is a person called the defender of the bond, Who's sort of the devil's advocate, and they're the one that, throughout the entire case, argues why the annulment should not be given. So it's a, it's sort of an adversarial process, just like in a court, you know, where you have two sides that argue both sides of the case. Once uh, those briefs are done, and those are always written, then the judge receives the entire case. He will review it, uh, apply the law and the church jurisprudence of the church to the facts, and then he'll write a judgment and. The presumption going into it is always that the marriage bond exists. So just like in a criminal court, you're innocent until proved guilty. In an annulment court or marriage nullity court, the bond exists until it's proved not to exist. So the proof that all that testimony that's been gathered, it has to be proved that the marriage bond actually doesn't exist. So that's what the judge is looking for, to have moral certitude. So this is another term. Moral certitude means that... On my conscience, as a judge, looking only at Almighty God, you know, not to the interests of the party, looking only at Almighty God, I have certainty, moral certainty, that this marriage was invalid, that the marriage bond actually didn't exist. And in that case, the judge would issue an affirmative decision. If he cannot come to that certainty, you know, he says, there's not enough evidence here that overturns the presumption of validity, then he has to give it a negative now, there's a whole appeals process. I'm not sure if we want to get into all that, but uh, whatever judgment the judge renders can be appealed. In our case, the appeals court is the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Uh, it can also be a, appealed to Rome. The highest marriage court in the church in Rome is called the, the Roman Rota, and some cases do get appealed to Rome, actually. So that's the, the basis of the process uh, in a nutshell. It's supposed to take a year. I think our diocese uh, is doing about that. Uh, sometimes it takes a little longer, um, but I've also heard recent cases that have gotten through in nine months. So it's around a year if things go well. Some, sometimes things don't go well in the sense that you have maybe witnesses who take a long time to get back, so it gets delayed. and So there, there can be some delays in the case, but it, uh, we shoot for around a year.
0: This is just mind-blowing. I didn't know that world existed. I've heard bits and pieces of this, but the depth that the church has taken to protect the institution of marriage is is eye-opening. I think that's actually a good thing. I mean, obviously, you know, we don't want this to be easy uh, in terms of dissolving marriages. There needs to be a
1: process here. What are the most prevalent reasons that you're seeing uh, for the? Yeah. So the most prevalent ground, and that's what they're called is what they, the specific thing they're looking at to overturn that presumption is called a ground. So the most prevalent ground is called grave lack of judgmental discretion. And that means that there was something about the person's constitution psychologically that kept them from being able to make the decision to enter into marriage. So, you know, we make decisions every day, right? And how we understand that happens is we, we get things through the senses. They go to our intellect. From the, the palate of our intellect, then we choose. So we have our senses, our intellect, and our will. Those are the three powers, right? We do this every day. You know, I see your cup of coffee here. You probably, you know, walked by the coffee store. So there's your senses. You saw or smelled the coffee that went to your brain. You said to yourself, oh, should I get a cup of coffee? And then you decided, you chose, right? Simple, innocuous decision. We do these a thousand times a day. The decision to enter into marriage happens the same way, but because marriage is a life-defining choice, it's not just like buying a cup of coffee, because marriage is a life-defining choice, that process of senses, intellect, choose with the will has to be working properly. So the question, grave lack of judgmental discretion, is basically saying that there was something psychologically about the person that made it so that that process did not happen sufficiently to choose marriage. How can that process be thwarted? Well, you could think of a lot of different scenarios, you know, like maybe a, a scenario is you're an 18-year-old, you happen to you, you get pregnant, you know, and your father or your mother say, look, look you got to get married or you get pressure somehow, you get some kind of pressure, and you're not able to discern that this is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. You know, so there was a psychological breakdown at that moment of decision, a moment of choice. It also could be like, you know, maybe somebody suffered from severe depression and that psychological condition kept them from doing that. Now, that being said, this is one of the things we have to judge. It does not mean that everyone with depression, for example, cannot enter validly into marriage because they can. So that's one of the things that we have to judge if a person say has severe depression did that se- se- de- severe depression keep that process from being able to happen sufficiently in some cases it does keep it from happening sufficiently in some cases it doesn't you know they have severe depression but they knew what they were doing and were able to know what they were doing when they entered into marriage
0: do you, do you find
1: this process to be an emotional roller coaster for people uh, yeah a lot of times it is for obvious reasons I mean um, there's most of the time you know there's a lot of hurt already from a marriage that has not worked. there's difficulty in waiting because maybe especially because they've already met somebody else that they would like to to marry so to have to wait out the process is difficult so yeah it can be it can be emotionally difficult for people and we want to minimize that of course from the tribunal's aspect and also to help their pastors give them pastoral care but at the same time, there has to be this process because it's a search for truth. Uh, it's not, you know, we again the judge has to stand before Almighty God and say, "I believe that this is, you know, that this has been proved." So it's an onerous thing to say that a marriage never existed. You know, that's a big thing. Uh, it can't just be quickly taken care of without proper discernment and judging of it.
0: As you know it, how many cases do you think exist currently in our diocese right now?
1: Um, I, I, off the top of my head, I don't know how many are pending, uh, but I do know that on average, we in our diocese judge between 80 and 100 a year. Now, some cases maybe don't go to judgment because of whatever reason they stop midterm or they the people decide they don't want to go through with it or whatever, but I would say around a hundred a year.
0: What would you say to the people uh, that say, ah, it's not necessary. I, I, don't, need, I don't need the church's permission
1: to, to get remarried. Yeah. Well, for a Catholic, you know, if they, they, they're not able to get married in the church without, you know, proving they're showing that they're free to marry, they're not able to, to marry in the church. And a Catholic must get married in the church. Otherwise, they're not really married. So even if a Catholic were to say that, to say, well, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to wait for the church to... And they go, go to the Methodist church and go through a ceremony, they still wouldn't be really married because Catholics have to... that The marriage bond would not exist in that case.
0: So for someone who was not married in the Catholic church, they don't need to go through the annulment process, is what you're saying? No, they do.
1: Okay. okay? I'm talking about Catholics, right? Right. But non-Catholics would have to also because when two Methodists get married, we recognize that as a valid marriage. So let's say you got two Methodists that get married. Let's say they even, let's throw another wrench in there, get married before justice of the peace. They don't even get married in the Methodist church. They get married before justice of the peace. They divorce, and then one of them wants to marry a Catholic. Well, they would have to seek a marriage nullity because we would say, well, they were two Methodists who validly married. We have no reason to question that presumption that that's a valid marriage. So...
0: Being involved as you have been, what would be some of the things that young couples should be considering? Because you're getting to see the back end of this where
1: yep. marriages have been dissolved. What do you, What? what give me some advice sure. for these young folks. Okay. I got a whole list of them. Right? All right. Number one, never live together before marriage. Never. It's the worst possible thing you could do. Worst possible thing you could do for discerning what you're doing. why is that? Because when two people live together and they're not married, okay, first of all, usually there's sexual relations involved or at least the serious temptation to sexual relations. That clouds the discernment process because that sexual component is so big, right, that problems that should be dealt with during a good, solid courtship and engagement period aren't because nobody wants to rock the boat during that living together situation, Right. And if those problems haven't been dealt with, they, they're they not going to go away. In fact, they're going to come back in a fury You know, when, when the people are married. And this isn't just a religious thing. I mean, there you can go online. There are plenty of statistics about this. Uh, the last statistic I saw is that the divorce rate for couples who live together before marriage is double the normal... Uh, divorce rate. So this is a matter of sociology. It's not just a matter of, you know, our Catholic faith. The the worst possible thing you could do is live together before marriage. Worst possible thing. The second worst possible thing you could do is have sexual relations before marriage, because it's the same thing. And i tell you something honestly and very interesting that probably only we judges would see. How many cases where the couple during the dating and engagement were having very frequent sex, they get married, and then that dwindles to nothing, right? So in other words, there's a distortion of what, mar- what sex is for. Just what I said before, talking about contraception, you know, that God has created sexual relations to be the visible expression of the invisible marriage bond. Well, if there's no, visible, if there's no invisible marriage bond to express, then the sexual act is an empty act, and couples then don't know what it's for, what God has designed it for, so all, those, all that sexual relations before marriage distorts the view of what God's creation of sexual relations are. Now, that doesn't mean that a couple who did engage in a lot of sexual relations before mm-hmm. marriage is doomed to a failed marriage or that they can't recapture the truth about you know God is merciful, he forgives us our sins, and he can also restore the light of our minds to his design. But that is a pattern that I see. In the annulment cases, uh, frequent pattern is a lot of sex before marriage, and then that dwindles off to nothing uh, after marriage. The third thing that I see, and this is really a prevalent thing, and I'm sorry to say this, but just the truth of what I read, it it affects females more than males, I think, that this idea that they knew there were issues, but they didn't think that they would get anyone else. And so they sort of settle for a person that They know they shouldn't marry, but they do it anyway. So I, I see that a lot, and that's that's uh, one thing I would I would say. And it, I'm sure it's not only women. I'm sure there are some men that do that too. But I I, I just happened to notice it's prevalently does affect women. There are a lot of fish in the sea, and there's someone for everyone. <laughs> and that you don't have to settle for someone that you know you really shouldn't marry. So that gets back to that discernment part, you know, and the ability to make a free choice about about entering into marriage with a person.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the marriage prep process in the Catholic Church today? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, so in our diocese, actually, we just started a new marriage prep process, taking advantage of a couple video series that have put out, been put out by some excellent um, folks the Gustin Institute and so forth. So normally, of course, you meet first with the priest. The priest kind of does triage to see what the, what the situation is like. Uh, and then we take the, they go through this video course you know, on their own. We then assign them to a married couple in the parish who is trained to help engage couples to prepare for marriage. And there's a whole list of questions that they, you know, go through with them and flesh out with them. The couples always say that's the best part of marriage prep because, you know, they might have their own parents who are good examples of marriage. um, But this this is like a objective non-family, you know, couple that they can bounce all kinds of things. And they usually are able to see their kids and their family life and they always say that that's the best part of it. So there's two video series then. So the first video series is sort of more a a general Christian life series, because we recognize that there's probably a lot of people that come to us for marriage prep, even Catholics, who aren't well catechized, who aren't well evangelized. And so we kind of give them more a general uh, update, if you will. Then they go to the couples and the second video series is called "The Beloved" from the Augustine Institute, and that more specifically targets the sacrament of marriage and helps them catechize, be catechized on the sacrament of marriage. They also go through a um, natural family planning course uh, to understand the, fully the Church's teaching on contraception and, and um, what the, you know the Church teaches on natural family planning, and also would meet with the, the priest, you know, to talk about any issues that might have come up to specifically talk about religious questions and um, there's a bunch of paperwork also that has to be done and of course the planning for the ceremony so that pretty much is the encompasses the process what's the timeline these days for marriage prep yeah so it's supposed to be six months a lot of times it's more than that because the, the wedding isn't for a year or a year and a half there might be some special situations where it has to be shorter than that i've had you know a number of military situations where you know he's being shipped off in four months so you, you, we can make accommodations for that in individual cases, but six months to a year is pretty normal.
0: Marriages that are struggling, what are the resources available today to these couples?
1: Yeah, so there's a program that's been out there for a long time called Retrovi. I'm not sure how active it is anymore in our diocese, but I do know if a person wanted to go on that. So it's a weekend retreat, basically, that helps struggling marriages. To There are plenty of opportunities they could do that. They could go online to look to see where, where they could go. Marriage Encounter still is a very uh, strong presence in our diocese, uh, and I know that many couples have benefited from going on uh, Marriage Encounter weekends. There's also you know, individual counseling that might help uh, a couple, and we have resources that we can point them to specifically Catholic counselors or at least counselors that understand what we understand about marriage and the human person that it can be beneficial to, to couples too. What would you say to someone who
0: is, is angry at the church because they couldn't obtain an annulment, but they want one?
1: Yeah. Well, I guess all I can say is that, you know, the the process of marriage nullity is, is never about moral culpability. I think some people feel that way, that like if their annulment is denied, that somehow the church is punishing them or the church is, you know, saying... You know, punishing, maybe that's the best word. And it's never about that. The marriage nullity process is is only about the truth, only about the truth of the marriage bond. And so all we can do, as I said before Almighty God, is to to answer that question, is this marriage bond, does it exist or not? That's the only thing that the tribunal looks at. And there's never a pointing of the finger or wanting to keep somebody in a situation that they don't want to be in that's not what the tribunal is ever trying to do but the tribunal does the judge ha always has to mm-hmm. uphold the truth you know because someday he's going to stand before god and and god will say you know you you didn't do your job you know that you thought this marriage was you knew this marriage you know there was no evidence that it, to overturn the presumption and and you passed it through anyway. I mean, no no priest would want to stand before God to do that, right? Because we have to judge it according to our conscience. And Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I, what would you say the hardest part of this process is from your side as, as a
1: canon lawyer? Yeah, so the hardest part sometimes, I mean, sometimes cases are really clear, right? So um, another ground that maybe we didn't talk about is called simulation, where a person goes through the motions of entering into marriage, but they're purposely withdrawing something. So for example, when you go into marriage, you have to intend to be open to children. So if a person on their wedding day has chosen, you know, even though they're saying the words, I promise to be true to you, so forth and so on, in their heart and their mind, they're choosing, no, I never want to have children. The marriage is invalid because you you can't reserve that and, and enter into a valid marriage. Sometimes those are really clear cut. So it's easy. But sometimes they're not so clear-cut, right? And so that struggling with trying to find the truth sometimes can be very difficult. I mean, I've had sleepless nights, literally, tossing and turning, thinking about cases. Because you want to help people, right? You, you want them to have justice. If their marriage was null, you want to say it was null. That's only just. But sometimes coming to the truth of that, given the evidence, is a struggle. You know, you have to read the case two or three times to because you want to do a right judgment. So, sometimes that's the hardest thing. Well, how do you reconcile that where you come,
0: the tribunal comes to, or the judge comes to a conclusion that that, that it's not a justified
1: annulment for Yeah, so part. that the, there isn't the evidence to overturn the presumption that it's a valid marriage. Right.
0: How, how do you reconcile that where that's the decision, but you have two parties that say otherwise, like, mm-hmm. you know, to, they they want this to be dissolved. How do you, how do you reconcile that?
1: Yeah. Well, all the judge can do is to judge by the evidence that's before him. You know, it's it it has to be it has to be very objective. It can't be that I feel bad for this party or for it, but I mean I may feel bad for this party and that party, but that's not how I have to judge as a judge. I have to take the evidence before me and judge it according to my conscience. You know, by the standard the church says.
0: So. You know, in in the secular world, getting a good divorce attorney matters. Mm -hmm. Does that help in in this regard? Like, could it affect
1: your process for having a a, a canon lawyer that's one's good, one's bad? Well, uh, you know, in terms of um, advocates, do you mean like the advocate who's arguing your case for you? Um, Yeah, I suppose it could. You know, as they say, there are doctors and then there are doctors, right? There are canon lawyers and there are canon lawyers. So, yeah, you're going to have different skill levels and... And maybe someone who is able to point out certain points uh, helpful more than others. But well, I think knowing this
0: kind of sheds a different light on the sacrament of marriage. To know that there's this much depth in the church, to know that this sacrament really matters,
1: spotlights how beautiful the sacrament of marriage is. Yeah. Why don't you talk about that real quick? Yeah. So, just from a canon lawyer point of view, like when we as judges, say affirmative, right? We grant the marriage nullity. We say it's been proved, right? That's a joyous moment because we know that we've really helped a person or two people or even three people to have justice and to go forward. But when we have to say no, we have to say negative. It has not been proved. That still is an act that glorifies God's gift of marriage, right? Because it upholds the truth about how God has created marriage, uh, to be the, the unbreakable bond between a husband and a wife. So, as painful as it is for couples to receive maybe a negative decision, it is still a glorifying of God because it glorifies God's, you know, creation of marriage. Yeah, it's well said. Well,
0: Father Mark, thanks for spending some time unpacking this conversation. Um, it, it's a it's a topic and a, and a discussion that. Some people are sensitive too, and I'm really glad you shed some light on this for us today.
1: Go ahead. Glad to be here and help. Man, yeah, thank you.
0: We would like to thank local real estate agent, Dominic Parsons, for his sponsorship of the Belt of Truth podcast. Dominic is a full-time dedicated, trustworthy real estate agent that is always happy to help answer your real estate questions. Reach out to Dominic at 260-271-9601 or send him an email at parsons at gmail.com. You've been listening to Belt of Truth, powered by the Armor of God Men's Movement, located in Fort Wayne, South Bend Diocese in Fort Wayne, Indiana. For more information about Belt of Truth and Armor of God, visit
1: armingmen.com.